You're listening to Artistic Finance, show 97. On today's show, I chat with Melissa Riker, the Artistic Director of The Kinesis Project, a site-specific dance company based in New York City and Seattle. We discuss managing a dance company that performs in two locations, paying performers as 1099 contractors or as W-2 employees, the cost of permits for public spaces versus renting a performance venue. We mentioned the phrase financially responsible, artistically wild, and we discuss Melissa's taxes getting audited and how much of the Kinesis's project's income is from ticket sales versus donations and grants, which leads to a discussion of fiscal sponsorship if you want to produce a work without creating a nonprofit company on your own. Now, today's Patreon bonus episode is a good one. We discussed the payment I received when I designed a show for the Kinesis Project. My fee was paid six months after opening. Now, freelancers have a lot of opinions in situations like this, and what's great about this bonus conversation is that Melissa is the producer who wrote the check, and I'm the designer that received that payment. If you are a freelancer, that conversation is definitely worth a listen. Find a link in the show notes or visit patreon.com slash artistic finance. If you aren't a patron and you want to hear that episode anyway, listen to the end of this show to find out how to access it for free. Now, without further ado, let's get to the show. You're listening to Artistic Finance Podcast, where your host, Ethan Steimel, interviews successful artists, leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire artists to grow their wealth. Welcome and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Ethan Steimel, and today I welcome choreographer Melissa Riker to the show. Welcome, Melissa. Hey, Ethan. We're recording this April 23rd, 2022. COVID is surging here in New York City, hopefully for the final time. But if you're vaccinated, it tends to hit you but not kill you. The requirement to wear masks in planes, trains, and on public transportation has been ended, though in New York City you still have to wear it on the public transit. The war in Ukraine is ongoing. In Afghanistan, women and girls are under Taliban rule. But there is some good news in the world. Broadway grosses totaled 35 million last week, which is a couple million shy of reaching pre-pandemic levels. It seems to be life returning to normal. Tim Rice tweeted today that he's bringing chess back to Broadway. So if you like chess, that might be coming back. (laughs) The Off-Broadway Lortel Award nominations came out. And our recent guest, Kate Hevner, was nominated for her projection design in Christina Wong's Sweatshop Overlord. Another previous guest, Lang designer Lap Chi Chu, was nominated for his work on Morning Sun. Also, inflation is up and going up, and that's a big worry for finance people. And they say it's going to trickle through to commodities and prices in grocery stores, etc. But frankly, I've lived 34 years, and inflation going up and down hasn't impacted me enough for me to ever notice, but maybe this time it will. High inflation means I-bonds or inflation bonds are at the highest level ever in their return. They are currently at 7% return until May, and at that point, they will be re-evaluated, and I wouldn't be surprised if that rate goes up. Now, if you want to learn how to purchase I-bonds and lock in that 7% yield, listen to episode 86 about bond investing 
with the CEO of Liquidify, Maitre Gopalakrishnan. You can find links to those previous shows in the show notes in your podcast player. And that is our update in the world. So, Melissa, you're on the West Coast right now. What's the news out there? Um, Well, I would say that the COVID news is kind of similar. There seems to be a little bit of an uptick in who I know that has now tested positive in the last week or so. And that's usually kind of a sign for me. How many people do you actually know that are now saying, oh, I can't go to the thing because I just tested positive. But in the same same vein, everyone seems to just be kind of getting a light flu, light cold, because, well, in the, in the people that I know, everyone's vaccinated. Thank goodness. But things are kind of going and grooving here. I saw Mark Morris Gems Company at Mini Center last night. So big theaters with lots of people watching dance. And that company, I guess, traveled usually with 17 people in the cast and is down to 11 dancers dancing just because of life in general, not necessarily because of COVID, but they were beautiful. They were gorgeous last night. Mm. All right. So to start us off, for anybody who might not know you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So my name is Melissa Riker. I'm the artistic director of Kinesis Project Dance Theater. Kinesis Project is a large-scale outdoor dance company. We tend to make outdoor performances in large public spaces. We take over anywhere from, you know, a moving space of 10 blocks of space to a 300-foot ship with the pier on the north and the pier on the south, old buildings in public, beach spaces. And Kinesis Project also has grown into a company that exists in New York City and in Seattle. So we do all of these public space performances in both cities. And sometimes we combine the company to be in one place at one time. Awesome. Awesome. Your creative personality, what is a live event that you like to experience as an audience member? Or what is a piece of art that you like? I mean, the thing that I love the most is to be surprised. I love things that have just a little bit of funny and a lot of smart to them. Like Neta Yoroshemi. Neta just create. Usually I would say that I love a piece that I can step into and feel like it's everywhere. I do love it when a choreographer uses space in a surprising way, whether it be in a theater space or outside or in just an unusual space. Performances where the choreographer, it looks like something's going to happen in a hallway, but then they lead you down the hallway and down the stairs and around the corner. There's one particular piece that comes to mind where there was a saxophonist like hiding under the curtains. Suddenly a saxophone comes out of the curtains. That kind of like sweet surprise. But Netta's work that I saw recently was an exploration of whose movement, who can do whose movement. And so it was this amalgamation of choreography that all of the dancers that were working with her had learned over their lifetimes. This like very varied cast of kinds of styles. And they had brought up dances they did as children, folk dances, dances they did with other choreographers. And it was all blended into this one piece. And the piece was called Movement. And the question really is, who, who has the right to do this movement? But the entire company is doing it. And there is also sweet, funny ways that you blend from a very modern dance perspective to, you know, suddenly they're doing death drops from voguing. It was wonderful. Some version of those two things. All right. Now your financial personality. Are you good or bad with money? I would say I'm both. I think I must be somewhat good with money because 
things manage to happen. And because there's some way that I, and I'm not going to say that this is a good thing. There's more of an intuitive way that I end up working sometimes, which is always in my mind, I know how much money we have. So then I guess in some ways, I'm definitely functioning on a cash basis. I always know how much money we have. And then as I look ahead, I kind of know when to panic. So that's not necessarily healthy. It's just what I know happens in my mind. I do love a budget. I love that a budget shows me where the values are of the project. I love that a budget shows me what I need to shift in where a project is. Try to be really careful with how that goes. I don't usually overspend. So I mean, I don't know where that falls in the good, bad with money, but I I usually spend right up until the amount that we have. So that probably falls into the bad category. What I've never learned to do is grow more money than we have. And I would say that's like on an art level and on a personal level. A friend of mine, I'm, I'm going to say that he coined the phrase financially responsible, artistically wild, you know, kind of trying to strive for that some way that you can have a foundation that is thought through and solid so that it lets you be as crazy as you want in your art. I don't think I've landed there yet, but it's a thought that I constantly have. Financially responsible, artistically wild. Yeah, you can quote that to John Robinson. I love that. Thank you, John Robinson. Artistic finance is going to start making t-shirts that say that. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Okay, I love that. And just out of curiosity, because I don't actually know this about you, is Kinesis your full-time job? Kinesis is my full-time job. And so do you have a salary or is it per project? There is a salary that is supposed to come to me. That salary kind of goes back into Kinesis Project, but there is a number that is low that is earmarked for me. And then what I would say that per project, the money that does come to me is the money that's kind of earmarked for choreographer. But the money that is supposed to be artistic director tends to come to me and then go back in where I do get paid. and. You know, I don't know if this is an emotional thing or what, but where I do get paid is the is the choreographer fee. In our budget line, that is something that goes all the way across. And sometimes it's me and sometimes it's someone else if we're talking about flash mobs, which we can talk about later. So also, this is just joking, but also not joking. But when we were prepping for this episode, you said, I can tell you what not to do. <laughs> which I thought was fantastic. And so I want to start there. And I'm just curious, why did you say that? Because to me, you seem pretty good with money. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I would say the what not to do that I learned in the project that we did together very specifically in the months leading up to that project. Like I said, I can see the numbers ahead of me. I saw here's this thing that we have been wanting to do, you know, live stream from two coasts and get them dancing together live audience in all places. It's so wonderful. Well, yeah, yeah. I just want to say that the project we did was in fall 2021. It was at the Brooklyn Navy Yard in an empty floor of the building there. Right. And that was what was happening on the Brooklyn side. On the Seattle side, what was happening was dancers were in a theater on Vashon Island um, with a giant screen behind them to make it look as though Brooklyn was in the house was actually in with them. And and actually it worked quite well. So what we did together was a pretty big experiment. We had done once in jan- January and that we were stepping our way forward. I was seeing what the budget needed to be. 
and realizing, okay, it's not the same as it was in January where we just kind of quickly loaded into this raw space and had a lot of favors done and had one person doing all the things, which was obviously not a great way to do it. For the one person who did so many things, we ended up with at least three people hired. So that breaks that one person who is doing me an amazing favor into three paid people. I saw the budget growing. And then here is the mistake that I made. We got a um, Shuttered Venues grant, which is wonderful. And then I had a notification that the supplemental grants were coming out. And I saw the number of what that supplemental grant would be. And I said, okay, great. We can do this project. We have buffer. We're in a good spot. We're artistically ready. There's a little scary stuff with injuries and should we really do this? And Sandbox wasn't quite on board fully. Their fee was a little bit high. It was a little scary, but it seemed like it was going to be okay. And then something happened in whatever the assessment is at the Small Business Administration, how they do their assessment of the numbers, and it didn't come in. Mm, Got it. I made a plan based on money that seemed like it was going to come in and didn't make it into our bank account. Was this like $5,000? Was this like $50,000 roughly? Like what? This was like $15,000. Okay. Yeah. That's significant. (laughs) Yeah. When the project, I did the numbers and the project was going to hover between $20,000 and $40,000. Well, okay. So the good news out of this story is that you eventually got that $14,000 from the Small Business Administration. Yes. So the ship has been righted. The ship has been righted. We have our gala coming up. We're fundraising for, you know, we have a gala on May 7th. So we're back into kind of fundraising mode and we're doing that in a wonderful, crazy way. So, yeah. I just want to know, when did you start Kinesis and why did you start it? I mean, it's kind of a long process of the starting, but the first time there was a performance that was under the name Kinesis Project was 2001, just after September 11th. So it was in October, 2001. It was a pickup company between a couple of friends and I where we would do duets. Um, And then in 2003, we had a performance that I hired dancers. Dancers came in and danced with me. And then they asked what was next, which was really why I kept going. And then in 2005, we had a first season. So 2005 was the first season of Kinesis Project. Then we became a large-scale outdoor dance company in about 2013, 2014 generally working a part. I was a paralegal. I was a part-time paralegal for a long time. I lost that job in 2008. Not a surprising time to be losing a job. At that point, Kinesis became my full focus. Um, And then we became a 501c3 in 2017, I guess, officially. Okay. So I'm curious about the New York City, Seattle connection. How did that start? I had friends in Seattle. My best friend in college had moved to Seattle and he was always saying, you should come live in Seattle. And then I had other friends and relatives in Seattle. Uh, John Robinson, who I quoted before, is an amazing, just an amazing supporter of live performance. Kind of we started working together with him as an advisor to Kinesis Project. The other side of that is that John works with a number of dance companies. And one of those dance companies is the Zoe Juniper Company. Zoe Juniper comes out of Seattle. And so I went to go see a Zoe Juniper show and they had this amazing backdrop, absolutely gorgeous. 
Zoe and Juniper make absolutely beautiful work. And this backdrop was giant, took up the entire space and had this intricate cut of some shapes that you could tell what they were and some things that were just beautiful design. I was in love with the whole show, the world that they created, and I loved this backdrop. And John said, well, I could introduce you to the artist. I think the two of you could get along. He So he gave me Celeste's information and we ended up talking for two and a half hours. As we were talking, we invented an entire new work together. And she's based in Seattle. So that was kind of the final step to create the Seattle connection where I was looking at the next project that we were doing, which was going to be on the rooftop of John Jay College. And I knew this piece was orange. I knew the dancers were in orange. It was about memory. It was about kind of what we keep and what we hold and what we let go of. And as I was looking at a shot from overhead of this space, I thought, would she be willing? And she was willing to have her work connect to a dancer, have her have dancers kind of not just be a backdrop, but actually interact. We created this giant dress that takes over the grand staircase of the rooftop of John Jay. And that dress is 32 feet wide and 110 feet long. And there are photos of it all over the place. So I just knew that I had met somebody who was as interested and unafraid of scale as I was, um, which is why we talked for so long, which is why we had so many ideas together. And then Asa Thornton made the dress and Celeste cut the dress. So it's hand cut by Celeste. And from there, we started getting opportunities to make work in Seattle which then made sense for me to find dancers in Seattle. We made a film here with that dress on the waterfront along sculptures on the, in the sculpture park, the Elliott Bay Sculpture Park and um, Olympic Sculpture Park that are kind of connected along the waterfront. And so I found a group of dancers to make that happen, to make that film happen. They were so wonderful and we got along so well and they loved dancing outside in the rain, which was amazing, that I just kept finding ways of working with them. So then we were getting hired pretty regularly by the waterfront of Seattle. So getting hired regularly here meant wanting a connection to the dancers here. And they were just so wonderful and lovely. And it was so fun to work here. It just kind of kept happening. And then the pandemic really locked it in because there was community here I wanted to support. And there was a dancer community and the dancers in New York. With the pandemic, closing everyone in and most artists, most choreographers kind of stopping work. I didn't want to stop work. I wanted us to keep going. And the work that I had started making was for Seattle. It was supposed to be for a festival that was happening in Seattle in December. And because all of our work is outside, there was never something like, you're just not going to be working. What you're doing is closed. So I figured I need to keep working. I need to keep making something. And I need to keep these dancers going somehow. I mean, my paycheck is not going to be enough to really keep people going, but at least it's something coming from dance. It's a creative community that we can all keep. So we started building this, building Searchlight, where they were all on equal footing because they were scattered all over the country because of the pandemic. So that kind of, that flow is what ended up locking it in. So now, you know, in the past three years is when Kinesis Seattle has become more real. Got it. Got it. You mentioned my paycheck is not going to keep anybody going. Every theater company, et cetera, that I work for always says that like, oh, this paycheck is so small. You don't need it. 
And I just want to say from the freelancer perspective, I add all those up and it keeps me going. So don't discount your paycheck that you're giving. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. That's true. That's true. I think there was just a lot when I realized in some cases I was the only one that had kept going. And that was a lot of pressure. With being on two coasts, does the nonprofit status change between the coasts? What are the complications with the finances? The complication with the finances is a little bit more connected to where you can get funding. I haven't managed to break into national funding. Definitely in the last two years, New York wants to know that what you're doing is going to make New York a stronger place, help New York rebuild, right? So having a dance company that's like, we're so visionary that we can perform between New York and Seattle seamlessly. Isn't that awesome? They're like, no, that's not interesting. That's not going to help New York. I'm a young enough company in Seattle that I kind of still need to build city funding, but city funding isn't available unless I have a residency in, in New York. I mean, in Seattle. So it's warring right now. It's not helpful. So the way that we, like our gala will actually be in, we're having small parties in New York, Denver, Seattle, and LA. And the idea there is that we're really building our audiences in all four places. There will be live performance in New York and in Seattle um, at those parties, and then they're all linked together by Zoom. Part of what I need to do, would have loved to be doing the past couple of years, but the least was a little bit doing the past couple of years is building our audience base. So then maybe we have the opportunity for some other funding from maybe presenters or something like that that are based in this area. And when you're paying checks to your performers and your designers, are you paying it the same in New York and the same in Seattle? Like, are you paying on 1099 or are you paying W-2? We're all 1099. So, so your performers that you said are in into it and get the monthly payment, that's a 1099 payment for them? And we, when we shift people's fees, we shift them in both cities. I see. Oh, so the payments are the same, whether you're in Seattle or whether you're in New York. Yeah. I'm assuming with your dancers, it's like a favored nations of everyone's getting paid the same. Um, we're working towards that. Uh-oh, uh-oh. I hope your dancers don't listen to this and <laughs> they're like, I want. <laughs> no, I mean, we've, uh, had, we've had an open conversation. In New York, we've had an open conversation and the conversation is kind of fluid in Seattle as well. But there's a little bit of an old school leftover staggered payment system where depending on how long you've been with the company is how much you make. But the goal is by midsummer this year it's for everyone to be at the same rate got it now there's been a conversation going on about paying people on w2 especially here in new york but i think this is a nationwide thing versus 1099 have you been having that conversation or have you been thinking about that we've had that conversation and w2 because of the tax status and um kind of stability is good right like we just we think of that as good because it means you have a stable job. It means that taxes are taken care of. It means it's easier to claim for unemployment if pandemic ever happens again. Right. It creates those kinds of safeties. On an active basis, number of dancers prefer 1099 because it creates freedom and the ability to, what is that word when you- Itemize, deduct. Itemize. Your entire life is an itemization. And I, I mean, in so many cases, that depends on what that person's tax situation is, right? If you have a partner with a W-2 and you're 1099, that partner is going to be a little frustrated, but then realize that your 1099 actually really helps them 
it's a case by case situation that every time I do the math of what it would take to get the company to W2 or certain members of the company to W2, the amount that I would need to pay in HR costs undercuts the amount that I'd be able to pay the dancers. And I haven't gotten to a point where I'm willing to make that choice. I, this is, I hope to do an episode on this soon. It's about if you want to pay somebody on a W-2, how do you do it? I sometimes hire assistants, et cetera. And I always do do that on a 1099 because doing that on a W-2 is very complicated. But I know that's the way I should go. Like that's the right and proper way to eventually get to. And so I'm looking into it for myself. But like you said, it's not cost effective at all for me. If I'm only paying two assistants per year, it doesn't make sense to put them on a W-2 because you can get a company like Intuit or something like that. And but then you have to pay like seventy five dollars per employee. And if I'm only paying the assistant a thousand dollars, it's like, oh, so I have to pay, let's just say one hundred and fifty dollars to pay them a thousand dollars on W-2. It, it just it adds significant costs. So for me, it only makes sense for bigger people. But I want to do an episode on it because there has to be a way for people who aren't an Amazon or who aren't a Google to pay. You know, there, there has to be a way for all these small theater companies to pay on W-2. And right now, the only solution is to hire a payroll company to handle it for them. But then you have to pay per employee. Those costs, I think, are reasonable, but they're still such a large percentage, like 20% of what the pay is that it doesn't make sense for somebody like Kinesis. Right. And there's, you know, I've thought about it from a commitment perspective. I've thought about it from financial perspective. And as you said, if something goes wrong, what that allows for unemployment, that's the reason to do it because of the way that it helps the worker. But then it gets complicated because then there are workers who are like, actually, I find my life is a lot more free if I can do it this other way. And and here's another thing for, so as a designer, I get paid 1099 a lot. And part of the reason is you're a dance company and therefore you can hire out the lighting because technically that's not in your line of business. You say, we just need to hire lighting. We don't know anything about lighting, so we have to hire that out. So I can get paid at 1099. I've run into like actors and acting coaches who they get hired and I say, well, why aren't you on a 1099? And they say, well, we're being told we have to show up for a certain class and we're being told how to do our job. They're, they're making us go on a W-2, even though we want to be 1099. I don't run into that problem because people don't know what lighting people do. <laughs> right. And therefore, they can't tell me how to do it. It's kind of in, in the way we schedule Kinesis Project, because our schedule is based on the dancers' schedules. So basically, they're telling me when they can work. I'm saying, this is our schedule. Please show up. And you know when you show up, do your job. But they have so many other jobs that my schedule is based on their schedule, not on when I want to be rehearsing, which would be, you know, if we got audited, that would be quite a conversation to have with somebody who wouldn't understand what we did, but could be cooperated with kind of how the schedule gets built. Yeah, I'm not worried about you being audited at all, because there's there's just so many parts to it all that that's the least of your problems. <laughs> like, I, I often like I, I'm like, if I ever get audited, whoever would have my case would just like be hopeless. You're auditing me. I'm going to be as very helpful as I can. And they're just going to get so overwhelmed with like, what do you do? What are you doing this for? What? And so for me, I'm like, it would be more of a, they just want to get rid of me as soon as possible. And so my hope if I'm ever audited is that like, just pay this fine and go about your day. And I'll be like, thank you. I did get audited (laughs) in 2017. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. 
I did. Um, it was while we were in the nonprofit, it was the last taxes that I did as an individual with an EIN. It was a little ugly because basically $80,000 came in and $80,000 went out. And why is that? What are you doing? And every little thing was looked at. Um, and I would say it was totally overwhelming for everyone involved, but that didn't keep them from just what they did instead of trying to be kind was they were just like, okay, so that means you owe us $50,000, which doesn't make any sense. And then when I went back and argued it, they were like, oh yeah, actually, no, you, we owe you money. Yeah. That makes no sense. If you have 80,000 income and they're finding you $50,000, that makes zero sense. Like we all laugh about it, but also they do say things like you owe us $50,000 and you have to deal with that. Like you can't just laugh at it. <laughs> right. Because we dealt with it. Was that on the nonprofit Kinesis uh, tax form or was that on your personal tax form and or were they blended? We hadn't officially gotten the 501c3 status at that point. We were kind of in process. The audit was on the last taxes that I had done as a Schedule C with Kinesis Project as the Schedule C. So as a personal personal business. Okay. So, oh, wait. All right. Sorry to I'm listening, but I'm also it's going over my head. So you were not nonprofit at that point? I was in process of becoming a nonprofit. I was functioning as a nonprofit, but I wasn't officially a nonprofit. My tax ID was still under a Schedule C independent contractor business. And obviously we had grown too big to still be doing that. And it was time, but it'd probably been time a couple of years before. We've had some nonprofit owners, artistic directors on here before. And some say, oh, it's really easy to be a nonprofit. You just fill out this form, blah, 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 blah. And then others have said, you know, it's actually complicated me getting funding sometimes because I'm nonprofit. So I'm curious for you, has being nonprofit been good for you in Kinesis? Where, what are your thoughts? If, if somebody is going to form a dance company, should they just start doing it, I guess, as for profit in a sense, and then later switch to nonprofit? What would you recommend? It was basically easy to make it happen, but that's because we were set up in 2011 or 2012. I had an advisor say, I'm going to form you a board. You, you need to keep making work. I thought I was going to quit. He said, that's not an option. You need a board. You need people to support you and help you fundraise and, and help you make these choices. We basically, the, the short end of that, that the whole other conversation is in 2011, was Hurricane Irene that hit New York and the Eastern Seaboard really, really hard. And who would have thought that a hurricane would be an issue in Vermont and New Hampshire? But it was. We had a tour that was booked through upstate New York into Vermont and in New Hampshire. Three weeks before that tour was supposed to start is when Irene happened. Contracts were still in negotiation. Nothing had been officially signed yet. We lost our entire tour no way to regain that money. I was on the phone and he said, no, this is what you need. You're not going to stop making work. You need a board. You don't have to be a 501c3 yet, but you need a group of people. And I have to say, starting that structure, because a lot of people are like, oh, I'm going to become a 501c3, but I have to make a board. I have to do all these things. Starting it in kind of a soft way, like the goal is to eventually grow into a not-for-profit that board already existed. I understood what it was to ask people to help me guide this project. So that made creating a 501c3 much easier because it all existed. It was just paperwork then. Got it. 
I forgot about the board that you need a board as a nonprofit. You need a board and you need bylaws. So there's a lot of kind of internal understanding of what the organization is in order to become a 501c3. Because it's not just a form. It's a form that has probably, you know, three pages of form and then needs about 15 or 20 pages of background information on the organization. Um, So a reason to not do it right away is so that you can figure out what you're doing. Yeah. So to me, it sounds like if I want to do a dance project in 30 days, I should just do that as myself. With a fiscal sponsor. Oh, with a fiscal sponsor. Yes, of course. Fiscal sponsors. Right. So it's not it's not profit or nonprofit. You can go in this in-between space where you have a fiscal sponsor. They take on kind of the responsibility of the 501c3 status and your money goes through them. Okay. So you could be my fiscal sponsor. If we had that structure in place, we could. I don't know why you're laughing, Melissa. <laughs> well, I mean, it would be, if I was going to be your fiscal sponsor, we'd have to have kind of an escrow account and some way to keep the money separate, some 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 separate way that it could be like stamped Ethan. All right. Well, okay. After this, after this show, you and I have to sidebar because I have an idea for a dance project with you. So, but I actually don't want you to fiscally sponsor. I just want Kinesis to do it, not me. <laughs> I just want to do the lighting. Great. We can talk about okay, that. Okay, cool, cool. Perfect, perfect. Um, all right. So now I know that you're, the way Kinesis is structured, you do site-specific things, often outdoors, which AKA means no lighting. People have told us that in the non-for-profit world, they get 50% or more of their income from donations. And then the rest comes from ticket sales. So it could be as much as 50% or 25%, something like that. Do you charge for tickets and or is that correct for you? Like where does your income come from? Individual donations are a big part of how we survive. Grants are another big part of how we survive. So that's another chunk. Uh, And there are grants that we can easily go for as a 501c3. The plus of being your own 501c3 and not having a fiscal sponsor is that most fiscal sponsors require you to finish the grant two weeks before the grant is due so that they can review it. And from a deadline perspective, from an overworked perspective, that's hard. Um, also, because I don't always find out about the grants until five days before they're due. So then that means I can't have one if I'm fiscally sponsored. So, side note, are you writing your own grants? You, Melissa Riker? I mean, I have people that read them for me and kind of do some review, but I am. I am actually, I kind of just hit a wall this year and then have been talking to a friend of mine who uses a a wonderful service. And I'm thinking I'm going to transition us into, it feels like it's extremely worth it to have somebody who actually knows how to do that. Got it. We, We did a mini episode on grant writing. The moral of the story was you have to hire grant writers and hire people to write these grants if you actually want to keep getting grants. Because if you do it yourself, it's just so time intensive and you also don't always know the rules or the people. And so, yes, you can get them and you do get them, but you have a better chance of getting more money if you hire it out, which seems painful because you have to pay thousands of dollars to get these written and applied for without knowing that you're going to get the grant. But if you do want it, like uh, the, the Roundabout Theater Company, they're paying people lots of money to get their million dollar grants. Yeah, I wouldn't have had to go through. You know, if I was using my friends, uh, the the folks that my friend is using, he was like, oh, Shutter Venue, that was easy. I mean, he also runs a theater. So it's 
it is easy. That is basically was written for him. But the struggles that I had would not have existed. So it is a time suck as well. Yeah, it's a huge time suck. Grant writing also, if anybody is retired and is looking for something to do in their retirement that is very productive, people are always looking for grant writers. And the reason nobody likes writing for grants is because it takes so much time. And I always think, you know, people in retirement, just find any theater company, find any dance company, find any nonprofit that you care about and say, hey, can I try to help you write grants? Because you will spend hours and hours and hours, but you will help out that company so much because they don't have the hours and hours and hours because they're devoting their time to doing what their focus is, not on the back end or front end with the money. That's, I think that's great advice. I think you should really spread that word loud and clear. Note to self, Ethan, when I retire, just volunteered to become a grant writer and figure it out for people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, I feel like this is an important, important piece of doing site-specific work or we can make the same work in many, many different places. So what we often do for tickets when we're self-producing or co-producing with someone is we do sell tickets, but those tickets create some sort of specific experience for the audience where there's a specific place that they know they meet. There's some way that they are led through the performance because the general public is also going to experience it. The general public is also going to just walk into a work and possibly continue to follow it. But we sell tickets to folks who know what's going on. There's a, usually some sort of conversation afterwards, or sometimes in some spaces, we've done like a little wine and cheese something afterwards. So that ticket buyers are the only folks that are getting that part. Um, because otherwise, there's no way to know who is going to experience the work or how it's going to pop up out of anywhere because it's part of what we do. Oh, there's dancers over there on that bench. What's going on? I'm going to follow what's going on. Um, and I want that to happen. Um, the other part is that we function a lot in public, not just public spaces, but public parks. And in New York City specifically, you can't charge for what happens in a public park, which I do support. I support that I can't ask people for money in a public park because that's what makes it public um, and not exclusive. So I agree with that rule. It just makes my job a little harder. Um, but it also means that we can, we usually partner with the parks that have a budget to bring art in, which from a privileged perspective is a bit frustrating because the underfunded parks are the ones that need the art and the funded parks are the ones that can afford us. So then I end up writing the grants to perform in the underfunded parks. We have to just depend on our partnerships with the, with the better funded um, organizations who have found a way to show that they have that they value culture being in their landscape. Yeah, so anyway, it's kind of a combination, but we do manage to sell tickets. But I would definitely say the tickets are not uh, actually 40%. Oh, okay, that's, that's, that's a lot. Yeah, that's a big chunk. Just because especially with you, the specific things you're doing, how many people can buy tickets to that because you're going out on the city block, et cetera. Yeah, and so actually, let me, let me shift that. It wouldn't... It wouldn't necessarily be ticket sales, but commissions, commissions to make those works. In some cases, that means that there's a partner that's getting a ticket sale or 
there's a subscription to a space or, you know, there's some way that money is coming from individuals into that space. And then we're getting that money. I would lower the percentage of actual ticket sales that we're taking in, then buffer it with like the commission to do that work where someone is paying us to come in and do that work. So just so I'm recapping, you're going to do it in a park. The park is going to give you $15,000 to do the work. You need 20,000. So you sort of, well, you can't sell tickets to the park, but you would get that 5,000 from donations or? Donations. Okay. The commission would be the $15,000 from the park. Mm, got it. I got it. I got it. I got it. Okay. Now, I, I would argue that Kinesis Project does not do work to sell tickets and to make lots of money. But I do wonder when you're thinking about what work you're going to do, do you ever think, well, if I do this work with X amount of dancers or whatever, it's very easy for me and I know that I can get the money for it. Or I could do this much more difficult piece where it's going to be harder to do. It's going to be more complicated, but artistically I'll be more fulfilled. So I'm going to do that. What is your balance? Do you ever think about money when you're doing the art or do you just sort of do your wild art and hope that you can figure it out to be financially responsible after, you know, or as you're doing it? (laughs) I would, unfortunately, I would say that I'm more of the column B where this is the piece that needs to happen. This is what we need to do. We'll figure it out. One of the most wonderful pieces that we did was take, we took over the, the Seattle waterfront it moved between the orange, an orange piece that we do and a gray piece where the dancers were actually changing costumes midway. They were kind of changing the color. We had sand. Celeste and Asa and I had created these ways that sand painted. Asa built these costumes that poured colored sand out of them. So they kind of drew the timeline of the piece in this gorgeous way. And we did this combining the two casts. So New York came to Seattle, real push of a week to get everybody on the same page of the movements they were doing. And it was gorgeous and it blew people's minds. But then the next time we came back to Seattle, I purposely made a very simple work. They were fully commissioning us and they were basically commissioning us for a giant flash mob. And I made the work, we made it so that it was easily translatable. And we just created kind of circles of five dancers. So everyone learned a track literally. And that was just translated into the entire waterfront. It was made more complicated by beautiful umbrellas and like color and fun and a live band. But I would say that that was my version of we're doing this super wild thing that is my art happening. And now we're being asked to do this project that I can do beautifully, a little bit more simply with a little less drain on the dancers. We will get paid for it. And it will be amazing because we're going to make it a great big experience. But most of the dancers came from Seattle and only five came from New York. So even though there were 50 people involved in the piece, that was my simple version. Also, talking about flying the dancers to Seattle, um, that's a lot of money. Yeah. It's not just flying them here. It's housing them and making sure everyone has a per diem and making sure you're paying someone well enough that they're removing themselves from their entire other patchwork built life. You know, that's the closest thing to like W-2 work that we would be doing. If we toured more often, we would have to be W-2, I think, because you're really controlling someone's life when you're doing that. Because I I was recently asked to go lighting design something at my alma mater, which is Missouri State University. And the fee is one thing, 
but they have to pay for the hotel and the airfare. And I'm sure there's some cabs and some other things there involved. It Maybe it's not $10,000, but I'm like, just for them to bring in a guest designer. So, I mean, flying, yeah, flying half your troop to an, across the country. <laughs> yeah, but it's awesome. It's awesome that you're doing it. And it's awesome that the dancers have you, et cetera, and you have them. With all your public spaces, do you have to deal with permits? And how is that? And do you have to pay for permits? Is there extra costs involved for doing the works in the public space versus in a private theater? Oh, the cost is nowhere near as much as it is in a private theater. I mean, a permit is $25 in New York City. It's a little more complicated in Seattle. How permitting works in Seattle is a little more complicated. But in New York City, a permit for a special event is $25. So if I wanted to do a five-day event, I would have to get a permit for every one of those days, and I'd have to get it accepted. But that is nowhere near the cost of renting a theater or... And sound is kind of a different thing. How you want to deal with sound in a public space is different, but we don't usually use amplified sound in a way that the police really care about what we're doing. We're using singers, we're using musicians that maybe have a Bluetooth. um, And then when we partner with parks, they usually take care of the permit. So, because the permit is for the performance. So when we self-produce, Um, or even co-produced in some cases with some parks, I have to get the permit. Um, But the form is really simple. Easy. All right. You're making me think like if someone wants to do a theater piece, they should do it during the day, aka no lighting, and they should do it in a park or public space where there's a $25 permit versus trying to rent a venue and making money. (laughs) You know, when everyone had to go outside during the pandemic um, because they couldn't be inside, I think that was something that scared a lot of theaters that people were discovering that they could actually do this outside. Now, most people don't make work for a live environment. Most people make work for an environment that they can control. And that's the difference in making work in a public space is that I actually feel like that live environment is part of our work. I'm not interested in controlling an entire space. I mean, I can, and it's cool, but, you know, actually putting things into a live live landscape with people who are going to sit there reading a book while your dancers are dancing or bicycles coming through. I mean, it all becomes part of the work. That piece we did in October that was in the Brooklyn Navy Yard and in in an unrenovated floor in the Brooklyn Navy Yard building, one of them. How did permits and finances work for that? Was that donated space? Our relationship with the Brooklyn Navy Yard is, um, the, the Navy Yard is actually quite wonderful where you could flat out rent that space for an amount of money that I could never possibly afford. The way the Navy Yard works is the more public offerings you have, the more they can kind of absorb the cost and turn it into their kind of agreement to give back to their community. The Navy Yard has relationships with all sorts of community organizations. And as long as there is enough lead time that those folks know about the show and know that they're invited. Um, We did like lunchtime experiences for employees and for free for folks who wanted to be there. And we provided a live performance. Yeah. So it was kind of, it's a bit of a give and take relationship there. And then in, in Seattle, the relationship was they gave us a lot of support and we did a ticket split with them. Melissa, I have taken two hours out of your life at 8 a.m. on a Saturday. Two more questions for you to wrap up here. And this one is, what advice 
can you give to anybody who's thinking about starting a dance company or maybe they've done some pieces and they want to take it to the next level? Um, what advice can you give them, uh, financial or not? One big piece of advice is if this is something you want to continue doing, choose a fiscal sponsor, choose somebody that you can um, be the place where money can come into and see if you can map out. If you can't map out a whole year, that's okay. But if you can map out six months of what you would like your work to do, how you want your work to affect the world, what kind of spaces do you want it to be in? What kind of people do you want watching it? Who is this work for? And then in small steps, see if you can offer this work to those people. Because I trust that whatever dances you're making or the dances you need to be making, that whatever your voice is, you're going to continue to learn and know that it also takes a while to know what your voice is. You're, you're gonna be making the dances that you're making right now. And then in six months, you might hate that dance and that is okay. It's all part of the continuum of what you're building. And also for the finances of a fiscal sponsor, if you have a fiscal sponsor, they take between one to 5% of the donations you receive for being that fiscal sponsor. And that's just a paperwork thing. I just throwing that out there that if you're thinking, oh, I can raise $10,000, know that 5% is going to go to your fiscal sponsor. That is true. And when you're doing your budget, you have to kind of allow for that percentage. You know, the way the field used to work is there was a flat fee and then there would be, the field is our fiscal sponsor for forever. Um, right now we're working with Fractured Atlas. There's a flat fee to be in the fiscal sponsor membership. And then there is a little bit of a fee on the side uh, that is usually quite reasonable. The field is extremely reasonable. The, the thing that I would say is when you think about what you want to do in this six months, this, this year, will you raise $2,000? Will you raise $2,500 to make your work? And if you will, then it makes sense to get a fiscal sponsor and not just like desperately do GoFundMe's and Kickstarters. The other part of it is that it gives you, um, it gives you the freedom to be able to write grants. And it also gives you another place to get information from because each one of the fiscal sponsors are also service organizations that will give you just a little bit more information, a little bit more of a network and the field specifically, if your work is socially engaged in any way, or you are of a you are working with a population that needs social engagement in any way and has been underserved historically, you could have that fee waived. Awesome. Melissa, thank you for all that. Okay, final question for you. Where can people find out more about you? Great. Yes. Visit kinesisproject.com, K-I-N-E-S-I-S project.com. And you can find us on Instagram at kinesisproject. If you're interested in the work that we do and you would like an inside scoop on what's happening on a regular basis and ways to meet dancers and kind of be on the inside in conversations, we have a Patreon that is a monthly way to support the work. And so that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N kinesis project and that would you can support us anywhere between two dollars and 150 dollars a month and it gives you a way to be in conversation with the work i'm in charge of one post a month and the, there is a dancer a month that is in charge of posting about what it is to be on the inside of kinesis project. i would love it if somebody would post once a month on my patreon for me <laughs> 
And I will also add that Artistic Finance is a Patreon subscriber to Kinesis Project. Kinesis is good people, and I fully support them, and totally go to patreon.com slash kinesisproject. And Melissa, may I ask, because you're a nonprofit, now Patreon is not tax deductible. At least if people are subscribers to the Artistic Finance Patreon, they cannot deduct that on their taxes. But Kinesis is nonprofit, so can people deduct that, do you know? Yes, because the money is going to a nonprofit. Okay, Melissa, I have said it, but I'm going to say it again. Thank you so much for giving me over two hours of your life at 8 a.m. on a Saturday. Uh, This was really great. A lot of good info. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ethan. That's it for this week's episode. My takeaways are people do get audited. Melissa is the third guest we've had that went through an audit. Permits are cheaper than venues, but they are harder to sell tickets to, but they are easier to get funding for because parks have grants available. Producers taking a long time to pay workers isn't because the producers want it to work that way. That's from the conversation that we have in the bonus episode. Financially responsible, artistically wild. I love that phrase, and I want all artists to be financially responsible. Now, there's a lot tied up in that, and I assure you artists don't want to be financially irresponsible, but there's a lot to an artistic life. And my final takeaway is that it costs a lot to make art. Yes, there are inexpensive ways to do it, but to do site-specific work, it takes a lot of funding. I'm so thankful that people like Melissa do take the time and energy to make art, to pay art workers, and they continue it year after year. If you have any feedback for me or Melissa, find us on LinkedIn. I'm there under my name, Ethan Steimel, and I'll make a post about this episode, and that is the best place to say what you want to say. If you are enjoying these conversations and want to support the show, please do. The best way to support me is by becoming a patron. You get early access to episodes and a private podcast feed. Do that at patreon.com artisticfinance. We mentioned it briefly at the end of the interview. I support over 20 other artists via monthly payments. Now, how I do that is 25% of all income for artistic finance goes back out to other artists, including Kinesis Project. If you're a patron, part of your monthly contribution goes to these artists. And to see who we're supporting, visit our website where I have a list. Per year, I receive just shy of $2,000 for artistic finance, which means that we're paying out roughly $500. Now, if you aren't ready to be a patron, but you want to access today's outtakes, That is as simple as emailing me at artisticfinancepodcast at gmail.com and requesting the bonus episode. Now, the final thing to mention before we wrap up, a shout out to our listeners from Oklahoma, also known as Home of Tiger King. I understand the UK, New York City, and California as those are artist hubs, but what is this enclave of listeners in Oklahoma? Is there a big arts community I'm not aware of? So if you listen from there, let me know. Now that's it for today. Until next week, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Make sure to subscribe. To access our show notes, transcripts, or resources, go to artisticfinance.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. 
Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Artistic Finance. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.